1: City Outreach, where the Lord says, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Welcome to Faith City Outreach. This is Marina Maria with today's special guest, Pastor James Sloven, who is the founder of Wounded Heart Ministry in New York City. He is ordained under the Independent Assemblies of God International. Pastor Sloven began evangelizing in the streets of New York City soon after his conversion to Christ in 1975, doing track distribution with Calvary Tabernacle under Pastor Ben Crandall. Many years later, he became a member of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in New York City and got involved with the evangelism ministry. Eventually, becoming the leader of the ministry for several years. Today, he is involved with preaching and teaching God's Word at Friends of God Ministry in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you very much, Pastor James, for being on Faith City Outreach to share your ministry and your testimony.
2: You're welcome. Bless you. you.
1: Thank you, Pastor James. I know you're...
3: to Christ happened in 1975, and we are going to hear your entire salvation story in detail after this radio interview. But my question is, was it challenging to accept the call of becoming a pastor?
2: Well, in 45 years of being a Christian, that's probably the hardest thing I ever had to do, and you answered the question with a question. It is a call. Mm-hmm. Um, D.L. Moody was never ordained to speak. They called him Mr. Moody, and he had. It, but it was, it's a calling from God. I've met people in my life that are pastors or are in ministry, but it's not a calling. And uh, it was a calling, and it was extremely difficult to be ordained with the Independent Assemblies of God because if they go through all your records. They want to know about you. I had to get three pastors that they recognize. I had to write 11 essays on the Bible. And they wanted to know where I was at financially and financially and every other thing, which is good. They really looked through me. And then when I got the call, (laughs) I was happy that they accepted me. That was a blessing.
3: At what point in time, or what did God tell you when you received the call?
2: I was sitting in a church uh, somewhere in New York City, I forget. um, And I just felt it was time to be ordained. I was preaching in different places because my heart is an evangelist. I was preaching, matter of fact, in Team Challenge at the time, and the Lord spoke to me and said, "You need to be ordained." So I went home, and I, di- I didn't go to Bible school. I just went home, and I got a lot of books on the Bible on systematic theology, and I kind of started learning on my own to study God's words systematically and read God's words. It took a lot of years, but I eventually finished it, and then I uh, I took eleven essays and finished them all, and uh, when they got when I got everything together they accepted me. So that's how I was ordained. Yeah.
3: Pastor James, how are you reacting to the health and social crisis being in New York city?
2: Well, we were ground zero in New York city. Uh, and it's been, it's for not for a better use of words. It's been horrendous over here, but everything is shut down right now. And a lot of people were terrified saying this, is this the book of revelation? I said, no COVID-19 I, to me, was a snapshot of what's really coming someday. I think God shut the world down to let them know who's running the world. It's been, at least in New York City, it's been it's been horrendous. But it gives you time to contemplate. I, in a sense, all Christians now, we're like in Noah's Ark, and we can't move, and we have to wait for God to open that door and let us out. Noah was locked away a year and almost 17 days in that ark to think about things, and when he came out, he went out and started brand new. I think that day is coming. I think this virus will lift off our country, off the world, to be honest.
3: How are all the New York City pastors that you know reacting to the health and social crisis?
2: Um, uh, well, uh, in Times Square Church, which is a big church with Pastor Potter they're uh, not up, up and running yet, that's a pretty big church. My church has a, my church has a big prayer meeting of about 4,000 we're completely shut down. Everything's shut down. Now, in New York City, the Catholic Church and Orthodox Judaism has taken the, the governor of New York to court to let the churches open again. So we're going to I, I think they won the case, as a matter of fact, because there was a lot of riding in New York City with people with shoulder to shoulder, but people can't even read and worship in New York City. And they're fighting that in California, too. The governor just said that you cannot sing or do any type of chanting in the church. It seems that, in my opinion, and we'd be responsible that the devil is pointing at the people of God. You can ride it, but you cannot. You cannot pray, which is, to me is absurd.
3: And I know that's happening already in California.
2: Yes, with, with, with that, with God, I, I think it have. I don't pronounce his name correct. I think it's Governor Newsom, and he's stopping it. And yet they're riding like crazy, they're shoulder to shoulder. They did the same thing in New York. And yet you won't let the church meet. I think that's a, that's a straight-on attack. And this is, again, I think the church, we need to speak to each other. The Bible says with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, I think in, they should go against the government. Just go to the go to Sacramento and tell them we're going to sing. We should respect the Lord, and we should respect the government. God has put government in place. But when it comes to do anything contrary to God's word, just like the apostles had to do, They said, who are we going to listen to, you, God or man? We're going to listen to God. And they went against the Sanhedrin at that time.
3: Are you and other pastors doing anything different in response to the health and social crisis right now?
2: No, we're just following the social distancing rules like everybody else. As a matter of fact, I think my pastor is in Florida right now. There's really nothing we can do. Now, one church I know is going to open up at 25%. I think that's what they're going to do right now, but it's going to be difficult. You got to go online to let them know you're coming. You're going to have to wear—I don't know if you're going to have to wear a mask in church. I'm not sure, but they will take your temperature at the door, and then they're going to have to sanitize it when that particular service lets out and go in again. So things are not right, and I'm just praying that the people of God will feel secure that they can sit shoulder to shoulder and come back into church. I don't know what that's going to take, but I believe God can do that. You know, like He did in, when we had the what they called the Spanish flu in 2019, after so many years, and it killed a lot of people. It just ended. It just ended, and people went back into their lives in a very normal way.
3: What kind of reactions are you getting from Christians in New York City?
2: Uh, Anywhere from uh, they're trusting God and holding on to absolute terror. People are really, really frightened. And I told a couple of the brothers and sisters, I said, I believe at the end of this, when things open up again, the people that walk close to God to make decisions by the Word of God in prayer will get stronger. The people that are in compromise, I think, will compromise more. But the people that hate us, the world, they're going to hate us even more. I believe that. But it will draw us to God, because if, if, if persecution really broke out in this country, you would have to do this. This is how the church ran in the first century. They were underground most of the time. But, but the thing they had that is missing, I think, right now in the church they had great power. The anointing of God was really prevalent in the first century church, and I hope we have that, too, in these last last days.
3: How does God want us to respond, Pastor
2: James? The only way, you know, people. somebody asked me one time, Pastor, what makes a good Christian? And in 45 years, I can only say this, prayer is the essential. I learned that being in probably one of the biggest prayer meetings in the world, in Brooklyn Tabernacle, just regular broken people. Study of God's Word and the, the other element or the other ingredients is always suffering. That will mature you. There's nothing that comes into our lives by accident that God hasn't allowed. It's to mature us and get us stronger for the next thing we're going to face in the future. As a matter of fact, there's nothing we've suffered so far in our lives that God can't use it. We'll just let him. It makes us sympathetic towards people going through the same things we're going through.
3: Do you think we are responding this way?
2: I'm not sure if everybody is, because I see Facebook is is blasting politics. As a matter of fact, uh, on Facebook myself, I was blasting all the politicians in New York City for the ungodly way they live and what they did to the city, and God rebuked me. As a matter of fact, you can see it on my Facebook page. I had to apologize, but the Bible says pray for those in authority. I, I may not like them, but it's an act of, of the will and an act of faith to pray for those people. But like the Christians would have to pray for Nero in the first century, who was uh, who I say like, on Facebook, he was a deviant, and a pervert, he married his own sister. But they prayed for him, because that's what God asked us to do. Loving your enemies is not a matter of the emotions, it's a matter of the will. And I hope Christians do respond correctly. Not all of us are, and I wasn't even, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, I was so angry what happened? Because I had one friend that died from the virus, and my best friend, who's been on the streets with me for years, got sick with the virus. And we're just trusting God like anybody else,
3: right? And um, along with this, do you think that God is healing the land?
2: I believe. That, you know what? I believe everything works together for good. The Bible says that those that love God, that those that are called according to His perfect purpose. There's nothing that he's not going to use. This will make people take take an inward look, maybe people that are on the fence with God to realize in a split second your life could be over. You know, people mm-hmm. a lot of times are, are prognosticating the second coming. And I always say this, the second coming is when you breathe your last. That's the second coming. And we and that's when you you have to be ready now. That's how I feel about that.
3: And do you think we're repenting?
2: I hope we're repenting. Personally, I don't think this is going to go over too big. 90% what I see on Christian television today, I think a lot of it is charlatan. As a matter of fact, one of the big uh, teachers that I see there, who I believe is a fourth teacher, I used to drive him around when I was 21 years old. Uh, and with this, is before the fo- all the falls came of the. T- of, uh, you know of what happened with the PTL Club and things like that. You, all the scandals came with Jimmy Swaggart. I used to drive, and I'm not using his name, but I used to drive one of the biggest, biggest proponents of, of Christianity when I was what 21, 22 years old. And then you see how they, how the, the doctrines are. You know, that's why I think a lot of these false teachers. I had to get very angry at them, but they couldn't be on if somebody wasn't paying the bill, and that's because people aren't praying and reading their Bibles, Uh, that Bonner, who's a poster for the Christian faith, says, when it comes to Christianity, when you get down to the hard tax or the, no, you get to the really bones of it, maybe 6% of Christians use the Word of God and prayer to make decisions in life. The rest believe that Jesus sinned, there's other ways to heaven, so they're not reading God's Word.
3: And do you think that they're not praying either?
2: I think... I think I can't. I can't speak for everybody. Uh, There's been many times in my life in forty-five years. My biggest prayer has been help. And and, but I talk to a lot of Christians. A lot of the Christian. I was talking to one Christian sister. She's praying with people all over the world. So I see a lot of Christians. To be honest with you, that are praying. You know, it's it's propelled their faith forward to pray even harder now. They want to walk with God closer because they see not only this pandemic. We've seen this pandemic, people are locked away for ten or eleven weeks. Then we've seen rioting all over the country and it, it's unnerving people. And what else can you do but pray? You know, you know, prayer can I've seen it many times down for the centuries when things look the most hopeless. God answers prayer. That's the kind of environment I grew up with in Brooklyn's tabernacle. It certainly wasn't a perfect church. There are no no church that is. If you want a perfect church they always say, Please don't go to it, you're gonna ruin it. But one thing was an essential there, was prayer. And they taught me that.
3: Pastor James, I know you are the pastor and founder of Wounded Heart Ministry in New York City, and you are ordained under the uh, Independent Assemblies of God International. But today you are involved with preaching and teaching God's Word at Friends of God Ministry in Brooklyn, New York. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's correct.
3: Are you still pastoring Wounded Heart Ministry, too?
2: I'm I'm still ahead wounded Heart Ministry was more of a power ministry. I really came out of uh, when I was leading the evangelism ministry in Brooklyn Tabernacle. Someone came to me and asked me if we ever used uh, prayer stations, or basically tables, you can see them. I said no, because at that time it was mainly going to people, track distribution, sometimes knocking on doors uh, in New York City, basically in Brooklyn. But prayer stations, which was started by YWAM, one of one of the people that signed for me to be, matter of fact, be a pastor, Nick Savoka, invented the prayer station. They're in 14 different countries, in 14 different languages, and people are using prayer stations all over the world. In a city that like mine that moves at a very rapid pace, things have done very fast in New York. When you have a prayer station and people are in need, it's like it, 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 they'll they'll see that big banner up in red prayer station and they'll come to us they'll slow down because people need prayer. And I believe when we get on the streets again, uh, we'll have people at a hospital, as we always have, but we people will, will be crying out in prayer, asking God for the miraculous, asking Him for a miracle. And I've seen many miracles on the streets. And,
3: and how do the uh, prayer stations work? I mean, I know you say you put them on a certain location and you also have a team. Working at the prayer stations, correct?
2: That's correct. The prayer and... stations, are, the prayer stations can, as long as you're out of the flow of traffic in New York City, you're fine. I stand by the Supreme Court in Brooklyn, in five boroughs of New York. I'm right by the Supreme Court in downtown Brooklyn. And you have people coming from every walk of life, from teenagers to people in their 80s, from lawyers to homeless people, anybody that needs prayer. And I've seen a lot of answers to prayer. on on the streets of New York City. One time, uh, years back, I don't know how many years ago, there was was an earthquake in the Northeast that rattled everything, and we happened that day to be out with our prayer station, and everything was being rattled, and we didn't know why everybody was running out of the buildings. The whole Northeast shook, but where we were, nothing moved. And God taught me a lesson that if, you know, when you're walking with him, nothing can happen to you outside of his will. But we didn't know what happened. We thought it was an attack, maybe an attack or something. They said, what's the matter? You don't realize that it was an earthquake. We felt nothing. So it was a great lesson to me with those things, that God can keep you no matter where you are.
3: Amen. Can you share a recent testimony of someone who uh, approached the prayer station and possibly uh, maybe experienced a miracle or, let's say, a deliverance?
2: I had a man come up to me one time. Uh, he was speaking in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. I have Spanish children and Spanish grandchildren, but I don't speak Spanish. And he was he was crying hysterical and he came up to the prayer, prayer, prayer station. I had a, a sister who speaks Spanish. Him what happened? And he said that his wife had some kind of uterine cancer. And when we prayed, he stood proxy for his wife, God healed her. And she's completely healed. I had another man come one time come up to me. He I'm a, I'm six foot. He dwarfed me about six six about two seventy. He said he was going home to kill his girlfriend. He caught her with somebody else. And when he when he when he came when he came, we was going down to the train station, they had a lot of tra- underground railroad in New York City, he came back and we prayed with him. Um I, I, I could tell you I I don't know if you want to tell you any more stories, but there's many of them.
3: Sure. We do have time for one more testimony.
2: Sure. I had a man come up to me one time he said, would you pray for me? I'm a gypsy. So I didn't know what he meant by that. You know, there's a lot of people, well, you can tell by my act, and I have a Brooklyn colloquialism, <laughs> you know, and I said, what, what do you mean you're a gypsy? He says, I go to the gypsy church. There's a gypsy church in New York. He said, my wife left me two years ago. I'm fighting with the elders. I have four children. And could you pray if she comes home? I haven't seen my wife or my two little girls. They're about six and seven years old in two years. And we prayed with him. About a month later, this one come, woman comes up to me. She has these beautiful four little girls. She said to me, are you the man to pray for my son? I said, I think so. What happened? He says, when you prayed, a couple of weeks later, his wife came home, and these are the four little daughters that you were praying for, and now they're all together. And that just broke me because God, prayer is invading the impossible. I believe that. That's the way I live my life.
3: Amen. Pastor James, what advice would you give to Christians right now during this um, epidemic?
2: I guess in, in, in my New York way, I would say hold on and, and seek the Lord. This is a time to really think about what, what, what life is about. Maybe you're holding bondage. You're in, you're in you know, captive to, to sin. Ask God to do a miracle. Uh, maybe this is a time that God you want, really want. You're locked away anyway. Uh, sometimes we get caught up uh, with so much as Christians with the world, the Bible becomes something, uh, just collecting dust on the shelf. You know, His Word is eternal. Ask God where do you, where do you belong, what you want to do. When I was in the workforce, as a matter of fact, I used to do something that was extremely dangerous for a living. I worked in a lot of nuclear power plants, and, and I took them apart. And I never had peace with that, and God was calling me out of that. Maybe you have a way with child like me that was, that was, that was on drugs, or maybe you have somebody sick. This is a time of contemplation. I really believe that God has locked the world away. And whether you have a church of 10 people, well, I've been in churches, I've preached in churches of four or five people or 10, or a church like I came from, from 4,000, we're all equal now. Everything has been shut down. And, and And it's a time to contemplate, to pray, and ask God, what do you have for me in the days to come? And don't ever feel insignificant. You, you know, God has called everyone, in a sense, to do something for him. And my greatest joy that I see in people's lives, when they step out, either give a cup of water, you can do anything for the Lord. I believe that. Not to be the greatest preacher or the greatest singer. You know, you know you can, as you give your life away, that's where the joy is. I, I've learned that very painfully over the years.
3: Pastor James, what advice would you give to pastors, pastors like yourself, and Christian leaders all over the world?
2: I would tell pastors, just like myself, I just hope their congregations are praying for them. Because when you're, uh, uh, listen, when you hear my testimony, you'll hear the life I live But When you become a pastor, you have a bullseye on your back, especially if you're walking in the things of God and you want to accomplish things for the Lord. I've never, ever, and I came out of a very supernatural background, a very demonic background. I had a. You'll hear it on my. Phone. My mother used to read the cards. And she didn't read tarot cards. She read playing cards, and she did it for nothing. And she was very demonic. But the attacks that came on me when I got ordained were secondary. When you're doing something for Christ, when you want to accomplish things for Him, the devil's not happy. And I'm sure these pastors are feeling distressed of how we're going to make the bills in their congregation. I'm praying that their congregations are praying for them, and my and the people that are called to ministry like myself, my. My pastors and my brothers like that. of them never in my prayers as well. We need to hold on together.
3: Yeah, so listeners, if you are listening to this message, please pray for your pastors. Pray for Absolutely. the people in your church. Pray for the world, of course, but especially also to your pastors who you go to every Sunday and who faithfully, faithfully serve the Lord. Amen, um, that's right. Thank you, Pastor James, for preaching the gospel to a very sick and dying world and for being so faithful to God's calling on your life. May God continue to bless your life in ministry and open new doors where no man can open. Please Amen. end in a brief prayer for whatever the Holy Spirit is touching your heart to pray for.
2: Lord God, I pray for everyone that's going to be hearing my voice, God. And I pray if they're sick in their body or if they're sick in their mind, you could lift this, God. Above all, Lord, who's ever listening to this, God, give them hope that they can make it just another moment, not even another day, God. And in your timing, God, I believe you're going to lift this virus off this country, God. Bring revival in America, God, to a very, very sick country, God, that's backslidden. We ask this, God, in the name of the Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen and amen.
3: Amen. This is Marina Maria from Faith City Outreach, and I am talking to Pastor James Sloven, who is the founder of Wounded Heart Ministry in New York City. He is ordained under the Independent Assemblies of God International. Pastor James will now be sharing his full testimony.
4: Thank you and good evening. Before I give my testimony, i just like to say two things. A, I am in the evangelism ministry, and on any given Tuesday night, I'm usually giving out tracts right at the front door. And on Saturday week about flies, I just didn't know I'd ever be giving out flies on myself. It's a uh, talk about self-promotion. That <laughs> was interesting. But for anybody here but a, that believes in divine providence, I was praying for the last year that I could give my testimony on my birthday. I turned 46 years old, January 23rd. And I was just praying. <laughs> Thank you) I was, like I said, I sing in the men's choir, and as as we left, Pastor Hammond said, uh, "James, get ready to give your testimony." I said, "Pastor, is this is my birthday present." You know, I said I prayed that, but God, I thought, well, that's half good. I said, you know, maybe God heard me. But today, 25 years ago today, tonight, right about this time, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. This is my spiritual birthday. Talk about God's divine timing. I just want to say this one scripture verse in a short prayer. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 10, as you ha- therefore, as you have opportunity to do good to all people, but especially to the family of God. And I just want to say this short prayer before I, I, I give you my testimony. Lord, I just pray in Jesus' name that uh, they will see that you are the God of 10,000 chances, that you're the God of the impossible. And no matter how bleak it looks, God, and no matter how dark, you can bring us through anything, God, and you can change us by the miraculous power. Glorify your son tonight, God, and save hundreds in this building, God. Heal the sick tonight, God, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I was brought up in parkslope Brooklyn, and my earliest memories of that uh, were, th- were that uh, was with my father. We lived on between 12th and 13th Street on 7th Avenue, and in those days, that was a middle-class blue-collar neighborhood. They were Bars just about on every corner. There was one on 13th Street and 7th Avenue, 12th Street, 9th Street, going all the way down and all along Flatbush Avenue. And the reason why I remember that so well is because my father made sure I was in all of them. Even my, my sister didn't even know this, but from the time I was about two years old, I was with him. And the reason for this was he was a very enraged man. He didn't have any of his knuckles in place. He was always fighting all the time, and he was an alcoholic. And the thing was this, the thing that I I think that enraged my father is that as a young boy, right in Brooklyn here, he was in St. John's home on Alderney Avenue for five years. His father put him there. But as he got older, he got in trouble, and he went to prison. He was in Sing Sing Penitentiary. He was supposed to go there for six years, but he was a troublemaker, and he wound up going for nine. And he spent a year in solitary confinement without seeing the the daylight, just like in the old-time movies. And... Uh, this is what I think really uh, enraged him to be the man he would, he would become. And he was always breaking the furniture and abusing my mother emotionally. And this is the type of uh, father I grew up with. Now, my mother, on the other hand, I had a Sicilian mother. You talk about two hot tempers. My mother was uh, in Mount Moretta home for girls for, for nine years. And when she got to see her sister at eight years old, her sister weighed about 50 pounds. You got to remember, there's no ABC or NBC for children at this time. So she was tough, too. So this is the kind of family I grew up in, but my mother, uh, she worked in a factory. She had made very little money. My father was always wasting everything on drinking. My mother had one peculiar habit. She used to read the cards, and these weren't tarot cards. These were playing cards, and this wasn't these $5 charlatans you see in the street. These, we didn't even know they were demonic powers or familiar spirits. We just thought this was absolutely normal. And my mother would read the cards, and my father was, was, was crazy, and I think this had a great effect on my thinking growing up. All I remember in the early days was that we would run away from him all the time every week, and we would run to my cousin's house. And we would get there as kids. We would play hiding from my father. She, we would be playing with toys, but we would also be, be playing with Ouija boards. And we thought this was absolutely normal. This was fine. And my sister at the time was into astral projection and uh, Edgar Cayce, which is a metaphysical cult. So these familiar spirits and these things followed my family for years. And I think this had a profound effect on me growing up. The thing with my father was this too, I asked my father one time when he was in prison, I, uh, when he was away, I said, uh, Dad, did you ever, did you know the Westies? Now the Westies were the, was Irish gangsters. They, you know, the Hollywood makes a lot of movies on them, you know, uh, like it's called The State of Grace, they have good fellas, but these were Irish gangsters. And I asked him, I said, Dad, did you know these men? He just said, uh, I play handball with the leaders every day. So you just knew that to push it past that, and this is the type of man that uh, he, I grew up with as a young child. And as, as, time went, as time went on, we were just running away from him all the time, and uh, this, was, this was a real, uh, this is a psychotic lifestyle we were living. And eventually, we finally got away from him, and uh, we moved with my sister. We moved to Borough Park, Brooklyn, which was predominantly Orthodox Jewish. And, well, they were shocked when I got there. But, uh, but for the next eight years, I would be addicted to a drug called pharmaceutical 2 which some doctors say is more powerful than heroin. But that, but the thing he said to me as a young child would be the most tormenting and, and affecting me for a good part of my life. In the middle of, of this, when, uh, when I was born, I was born 9 pounds, 12 ounces, I was 23 and a half inches. You would think I'd be a healthy baby. But I, w- I had chronic lung disease from six months old, I was never able to breathe, and this this, this feeling this inferior would, and having a father like this in that kind of a house I would sleep with my father and my sister would sleep with my mother now he never sexually abused me but he was more of a god his word was law whatever he said I, I believed and the thing he said to me which would be the most destructive thing in my life and, if, and affect me into my Christian life like Pastor Toledo was preaching you know have an entrenched argument he said this he said you'll never be the man my father was and I would spend a good part of my life trying to prove him wrong. And it unfortunately, it would affect me into my Christian life. So as time went on, as I said, I became a teenager, I moved to Borough Park, and now I'm addicted to these drugs, but I could never kill that crazy voice telling me all the time. And the next, the next events that happened, this happened in a succession of summers after that. The first event that happened, this is the early 70s. This is right after the hippie revolution and right before disco came in. It's right around this time in the early, late 60s, early 70s. The first, thing, the first thing I remember was this. We were always stealing cars when we were a kid. We didn't, we, we didn't steal them to make money on them, but this particular night, the cops were chasing us, and right where Ocean Parkway meets Church Avenue, right there, they were on top of us, and we, all, they, we made a quick turn, and we jumped out of the car. Everybody's running in different directions. I was on the passenger side in the front, and when I jumped out, the cop car was coming right at me. What they should have did the police, they should have killed me, took the door off, and just wiped us out. But for some reason he swerved out of the way and I was the only one that got away that night. Another summer was in succession. I was with my friends again and I had just got out of jail. I went there for a couple of weeks. I was, you know, I was on Block 5, A-side, 2A4 in Rikers Island. And I knew that wasn't the life I was gonna live. I wasn't going back under any circumstances. So this particular night I was going down to buy drugs again and buy pills. And the police were in an unmarked car across the street, and I had three of them in me already. And they are watching this transaction go back and forth. And they said, "You know, I had 16 pharmaceutical you Put 10 people out." And they come running across the street, and they say, "Drop those pills." I said, "I'm not dropping nothing." I said, "And I wasn't going to run because men don't run—at least that's what I thought." So I ate all 16, and I—and I had now I had 19 tournals in me at this time. And I walk over to my friends, and I said, "Listen, uh, I'm going to die." <laughs> I said, "Let's go to the hospital." I said, "You know." I woke up about three days later and that was the second time that God spared my life. Another summer came by. You're going to love these summers. And we were all hanging, we were all hanging out together. Now, This was interesting because when we, we hung out, we weren't a gang. We were a lot of kids though. But one night over something as stupid as get we were going to have a gang war over a softball game. So we had a pretty good mix of friends. We were... Irish, Italians, but a lot of, we had a lot of blacks. My, some of my best friends were Spanish. We were Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. You know, we weren't prejudiced. We hated everybody equally. We'd be more than happy to beat you up. You know. You make a difference to us. So we were going to fight with all the Puerto Rican kids down at the projects over there over something as idiotic as a, as a softball game. So, <laughs> so one of my friends was down there spying it out, and he comes back, and he says, listen, Jimmy, he goes, there's men down there twice our ages. they got guns and... Uh, they're waiting up there with cocktail bombs. A lot of people are going to get hurt. So I, just, so I decided to do something as usual, suicidal. I said, all right, listen. I turned to my friends and said, I'm going to go down there by myself. And they thought I was being brave, but I was going down there because no matter how many times I tried, I could not be the man my father was, no matter what I did. So I knew I wasn't coming back. But I didn't care because, you know, I, I just couldn't take it anyway. So me and a friend of mine, he had a 38 on him. We walked down towards a 38th Street Park. And as we're going towards there... They're screaming, like because they see the two of us turn the corner, so they figure there's another 150 of us behind us, and, but there's nobody. All of a sudden, the screaming stops. And I walk up and said, listen. I said, get anybody you want. I said, well, I'll fight them. I don't care who it is. Well, you know, it doesn't make a difference to me. And I, I didn't think I was coming out anyway. So they put us in the park, and they surround us. You know, we were in the sprinkler system there. So they got this guy. He was about four inches sm- smaller than me. He couldn't speak and he couldn't hear, but he could punch. And we started, we, and we get. And they, surround, they surround us like this, and we start to fight, and this, he hit me. So I did all right for a little while. They said, but Jimmy, if you kick him, we're gonna kill you. I said, well, okay. I, You okay. Know, so we're starting the fight. We're going back and forth like this. He hit me. He split the inside of, of my mouth open like this, and I seen, it was like, you ever see the tweeties in the cartoons? I didn't know where I was. <laughs> for about two seconds there, I'm covered up, and two seconds in a street fight is a lifetime. So they, you know, I, I, I just stood up fast like this, and I said, oh, you won, and I put my arm around him. So I figured, I figured they're going to rush in now and kill me, but, I was, but they didn't realize I was going to kill him. I was either going to stab him or break his neck. I, just, I was going to take him out. I figured I wasn't coming out of this alive anyway. They were so happy he won, they opened up, and they let both of us go. And I'm saying to myself, I, I thought we were dead. I said, what's going on here? There's got to be something protecting me, because I knew God with the great spirit, but I never knew that Jesus loved me I didn't know God as Father So we walked out of there And I was, in this, this, and I was brought up Catholic I was in this Catholic grotto another time And I was stoned and, I was, and I'm going to give you the cleaned up version Of what I said to God I said God what are you doing I'm trying to get myself killed here Will you please stop this I, I want to go out like a warrior I said what are you doing this for I, just, I didn't understand that the next two events in my life, were they even got more, a little got more insane. We were, again, we together, all my friends, we were going to Prospect Park. It was about 9th Avenue, and was 12th Street. It was about five of us, we going in, going there, and in those days, we didn't have boom boxes or nothing like that, and so we're walking through there, and somebody yells out to me, to lower that radio. I, I'll give you the, I'm, no, you, you, I'm not gonna lower nothing. We just kept going. We came back about five minutes later, about two hours later, and this time it was about 20 of them. And they were waiting there, and blood was flying everywhere. There was five of us against about 20 of them. made branches and bottles and everything. All of a sudden, one of these guys, he pulls a butcher knife, and he stabbed my friend in the heart, and he went down. And he, he as a matter of fact, he died that night. And that particular night, I got stabbed too, but I didn't know it. But instead of running, when those things would happen to me, I got enraged, and I went after him. And, and, I, and I, this particular, they, they were running from me now. And, you know, when I hit him across the face with intended that particular night, and I put the mark of Cain on him because when they put, the, they, I put him into identify him, I said, that's the one, that's the one right there that we identified. So as we, as that particular night, I, I was telling Pastor Hammond when I was in the office with him, I showed him. I didn't even realize at the time, I got stabbed too. I got 25 stitches in the side that night. I was just bleeding profusely. But God again had spared my life. You know, I used to tell my friends, I said, you know something, nobody's got luck like me. I said, I can't die. I said, I just, I don't understand this. I said, no matter what I do, nothing happens, you know. But the, this would be the last time in my life. This would be another summer. You know, my matter of fact, my son gave me the the uh, date today, that I would be involved in this crazy life lifestyle. But this this time, I would understand for the first time in my life between good and evil, and see the difference between light and darkness. This particular, and I had a friend of mine, Paul Bella. He's here tonight, and. When I, when, I, when I was basically in my right mind, he would invite me over to my house, which was rare, but that particular night I was. And he took, me to, he took me to his house, and his mother said, you know, Jimmy, I'm praying for you. And she was a Christian. She went to Calvary Tabernacle with Pastor Crandall. That's, the, that's the, now the favorite Christian Center. And I would say, save me. Save me from what? You know, what do you mean? I, you know, you're gonna, God, I'm praying that God saves you. A couple of days later, I went to my other friend's house. Now, his mother was a witch. That's the truth. And I didn't, I didn't really see the difference. I thought all, all spiritual things were basically the same. Now, we would go to her house, and what we would do, we would sit around there, and, we, and she would ask us to smoke a cigarette, and I would hold it like in a perpendicular position and hand it to her. And she would go like this and read the ashes and tell my so-called future. And, she, and let me tell you something, this, these powers are real. They weren't these make-believe things or self-hypnosis. These were, these were powers of darkness. But the Bible says the devil only comes to steal and to kill and destroy and I didn't, I didn't even understand that at the time but I would understand it a few days later. She read all our f- fortunes and told our so-called futures but that particular night she couldn't get a reading for her son. It just didn't go that night so that, she didn't understand it so we forgot about it and we left the house. A few days later we're, hang, we're, getting, we're all together we're hanging out right in Borough Park I and mean, the orthodox Jewish people they must think well, well we, I, I got some lovely ones here and there's the a bunch of us standing there. All of a sudden I see this man he's, he's across the street I found this out later, he had a, and he comes running across the street, and he had a .32 pistol in his hand. Now, the first thing he did, I didn't even know what was going on at the time, the first thing he came come up, and he, he, sh- he shoots my friend right in the heart, but he missed him, and he just kept running. I, I, as a matter of fact, he took the skin off, off his heart right here. So I said, he said, Jimmy, I got shot, but I, I guess it didn't go through, so I just kept running. <laughs> so we were standing there, the four of us, and this man, he picks this gun up like this, and I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with my best friend, and he says, you know, you got a big mouth. And I'm and I'm gonna tell you something. The frozen feeling there's nowhere to run, you're standing there horrified, there's no way to go. And he says, You got a big mouth, Omar, and he shot my friend here, but what happened? It ricocheted off the back of his back of his body, I guess it hit a bone. And he died right in my arms. He went right down and tightened up. But the night before that he went to see Nicky Cruz, the cross and the switchblade, I don't know if he ever accepted Christ. Only eternity will show that. But again, when those things would happen to me. I got so enraged that he shot my friend when, it, when I shook it off. I, I started chasing him. And instead of acting normal and staying there, we, me and, his, and my friend's girlfriend were chasing this maniac with a gun. Thank God we never caught him. You know, I, I realized that at that time, I said, you know, my, my luck is running out here. I said, there's got to be something greater than this. So my friend said, why don't you come to church? So he took me to Calvary Tabernacle, and, and uh, you know, I, I, was, I was sitting in the balcony, and I heard the gospel, and I heard Pastor Crandall. I said, you know, this is just too good to be true. This, this doesn't happen. But after about two or three months, I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and I knew that God was real. And, he, and, and here, here was the thing that I said to the Lord. I said, God, if you are greater than all these spirits I grew up around, you've got to deliver me from this drug instantaneous. Now, I have nothing against drug programs. I go with the men's choir and men's shelters. I think they're wonderful, but I didn't know it any other way. I didn't comprehend. All I knew was that if God was God, he was going to set me free in a hundredth of a second. So I walked, up, I walked up to the altar and I said this in his prayer, and I said, "I accept you, Jesus, as my Lord." And about a thousand volts of electricity shot through me, and it was the first—everything started coming out of me. It was the first time in my life I ever felt peace and I felt freedom, and I knew that God had saved me. And with all the heartache that has come in my life in the last 25 years, the ups and the downs, God has kept me free from that drug for 25 years. I've never gone back. I love you, In in those days, you know, know, I was about 21 years old when I came to Christ. You know, the the pastor let me work in the church, and I was painting the church and doing things. And, you know, that's when you're on the honeymoon with God. You say, oh, this is great. You know, there's no devil. This is just, you know, this is wonderful. You know, so I'm I'm reading the Bible, and the first book I ever read was Angels, God's Secret Agents. And it talks about how angels protect us and things like that. And I guess because I was so afraid that that I would have no protection, because I knew I couldn't fight anymore, and I knew that was wrong. And I just wanted to believe God to protect me. So the church on 64th Street in Brooklyn was connected to a junkyard. Now, naturally, at the end of the day, when everybody work, finishes work, they go home. They walk out the front door. Not me. I got to was The junkyard is right here. Naturally, when you have a junkyard, you have junkyard dogs. So one day, I'm walking out my little book, Angels Like This, and here comes this greasy hound chasing me. So I'm, I'm running through the junkyard, and you know what this tough guy did? I went, ah! You know, he's chasing me like this. But all of a sudden, I turn around like this, and this. It looks like somebody's holding by the neck, but there's nobody there, so I look at the book, I look at the dog, I say, ah, there's no angels. I said, I'm just gonna keep going. But naturally, instead of being smart the second day, instead of walking out the front door, I gotta walk out the back again with the junkyard dogs. But this time, he brings his big brother. Now there's two dogs chasing me, and nobody's holding them back. You know, these two devil dogs, hounds from hell, are chasing me through the backyard. So I'm running like crazy. I'm going, ah, and so I'm, I, I'm holding onto the fence like this. They're snapping at my feet and there's no way to run. And across the street, there was a repair shop, and this guy had, you ever see those Rottweiler dogs? Those are the dogs that are made at the world because somebody cut their tail off. You ever see <laughs> They look like they take steroids and, and work out when nobody's looking. You ever see them? So now they come running across the street and there's four dogs there. I said, oh, I said, this is it. I said, I'm going to be lunch today. I'm not getting out of this one. So I couldn't hold on forever. So finally I let go of the fence and I cover up like this and nobody's biting me. I don't understand it. I turn around and instead of the two attack dogs, instead of snapping at me and biting me, they're snapping at the junkyard dogs and they're snapping at them and snapping and pushing them back. And all of a sudden, this is the truth, how I remember 25 years ago. The two attack dogs they just back up like this and they almost look at me in unison as if to say go. And I walk between all four of them and nobody hurt me. God had protected me. That is he did he did the miraculous like he promised me he would do. You know what as usual when you first come to Christ I worked with the Yogi Bear Ministry, you know the the bus ministries that we used to give out tracks in in, in the village. We give out about a millions of tracks down there. But you know something? The Bible says that Solomon seen the Lord twice, and yet his heart wasn't fully devoted to the Lord at the end of his life. You can't, you know, it's wonderful to speak of the miraculous and the move of God, but this is a walk of faith. So now we jump to 1987, and you would think with all the wonderful things the Lord had done for me, I would walk with him, but I was backslidden. My my marriage was over, and I'm sitting in a car, and I'm snorting cocaine, and and I'm drinking, because it gave me that same rage, that same adrenaline shot I would feel as a kid. And most of the churches in the area said, you know, this guy's finished. Everything that God did for him, he's, he's done. You know, but God don't look at people the way men do. God looked at the heart. I was coming, out of, I was coming out, of, out of a club one night in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I was shooting down the block in my brand new car. And all of a sudden, this 71 Ford failing, this tank hits me. And he smashes me into pieces. My friend's head bounces off the windshield. He's bleeding. But God, again, had spared my life. And that same friend, Paul Bella, came to me. And he said, Jimmy... What are you doing? you got to serve God or the devil. You can't live like this. And at that time, I was working with the union carpenters. I was working in, I don't know if anybody lives near water treatment plants. You ever get the stench of that? I was working in the main sewer pump where all the waste goes. And the, and the, and the Lord spoke to me. He says, this is your life. This is what you've become. And he gave me Psalm 88, which is a very dark, acrostic psalm. But this time, I didn't care. I, I, I was urinating blood at the time, and the doctor said, you need to stop or you're going to die. So I got up right in that sewer pump, and I said, God... Are you still the God of a thousand chances? Are you going to give me one more chance this time? I just said, I said, Lord, this is exactly what I said. I said, I love cocaine more than you, and I don't want to stop. And unless you do a miracle, I'm never going to stop this time. But this time, there was no Holy Ghost goosebumps. There was no anointing. This time, I would go home and sit at the table and shake for weeks and weeks on end. I lost about 90% of my friends, but again... God had set me free, and from that day, nineteen eighty-seven to November, till as I'm standing in front of you, God has kept me drug and alcohol free by His grace. <laughs> you know, it was about that time that uh, you know the Lord has always speaks to me pictorially through lessons. He speaks to it through the Word of God, and He speaks to it through prayer. But with me, I was always a little thick-headed, and God always had to show me things. So he decided, I guess the Lord decided in the early 1990s, he's going to give me a real lesson on what manhood is. Around 19, around I guess in the early 1990s, I got very sick with lung disease again. I had to go on permanent disability. I just couldn't breathe anymore. But to complicate things, my mother and father, who smoked all their lives, my father got emphysema, which is, which is deadly, and my mother got emphysema, which turned into lung cancer. So there we were, everybody, and I, I would go from this macho construction worker to a nurse, and I wasn't going easy, I hated this. My mother couldn't clean no more or cook, and my father couldn't do nothing, so I had to do all the cleaning and all the cooking. Uh, when it was time to, to go shopping, I'd have to, she, my mother would pull out all these menus to go to restaurants and stuff, stuff things like this. The other thing, that was, and this was humiliating, my mother naturally had to take showers and stuff, and I would have to be like Noah's sons, not to shame my mother, I would walk in the bathroom like this. So, you know, but I had to help, she's my mother. Plus the fact her body was breaking down, it was diarrhea all the time, and this was humiliating. And I hated this. But the Bible says a servant of God must have meekness and gentleness. And God was breaking me. You know, at this particular time, I I live in an apartment house, and there's there's orthodox families. And when my mother's respiratory disease turned into lung cancer, I was in the basement. I always knew that God had a call on my life. But I I was praying in the basement. Now, this is like on the Shabbat, you know, the Jewish, you know, the Jewish Saturdays when the the Jewish people are praying. And they're upstairs dancing around and they're singing, you know, and I'm I'm downstairs and I'm I'm like this, God, don't let my mother die of cancer, God. I don't care what you do, please don't let my mother die of cancer. And I'm walking back and forth, speaking in tongues, saying, God, please. So you got the Old Testament praying upstairs and I'm the New Testament praying downstairs, you know. (laughs) All of a sudden, they stop, and I'm, you know, they they listening to me. and I'm praying, serving God, and then all of a sudden, I would stop, and I hear them. So, you know, we had both going at one time. I come upstairs, and there's my mother. She's all gray. So I call my sister, and my sister, we just felt that, you know, well, I guess the cancer's spreading. You know, it's, you know, this is it. You know, when you pray like that, the enemy comes in a lot of times when you're asking God for a miracle. And he says, you know, you're a great prayer warrior. You know, he says, your mother. you pray for your mother, and she's dying. Now, you've got to understand At that time, I was going to the hospital at least seven days a week. My father would go into the hospital, my mother would come out. My mother would go in, my father would. This was nonstop. I thought I was having a nervous breakdown because I think my heart goes out to anybody that takes care of sick people. This this was overwhelming to me. So I just just couldn't take it. I just pulled the phone out of the wall. I said, I'll let the doctor call me later. I said, let him tell me my mother's going to die and that's it. So I got up a couple hours later, the doctor calls, and he's a tough doctor, Dr. Fishman. He's a a wonderful man, but he he was tough, and he was very forward, he says, this is what he said to me. He says, Jimmy, don't be in a hurry to put your mother in the box. I just x-rayed her, the cancer's gone. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) But I didn't believe him. I just said, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. So I, I took my mother to the chemotherapy, you know, and after she got better. I, you know, the chemotherapy doctor x rays my mother, and he goes, no, no, you don't have to get nothing. He goes, the cancer's gone. I cried so hard because God has been faithful, and, and, and he spared my mother's life. And, you know, out of everything I've ever been through in my life, you know, at this particular time, when all this was going on, I started counseling with Life Ministries with Ron and Joanne Hiley. And she, and she would counsel me from the word of God and she gave me a 69-cent notebook. book and, and my biggest problem was fear in my life. Horrendous fear. It's funny that pastor would speak about that today. And she said, anytime you feel this fear as you're journaling and writing about it and it don't line up with the word of God, she said, just write the godly response. Just write, uh, God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. But see, I see, I wouldn't do that. I would get up and I would pray and, I, and, and I, this may sound silly to you because you know I love hermeneutics and I love studying the life of times of Jesus the Messiah but in 25 years you know what my greatest prayer has been? God have mercy on me help me I can't get out of this one so at this particular, at this particular time when all this was going on the Lord started to really break me and I, I felt this rage coming off me and I, I almost didn't know what to do with it but as usual when the Lord does, it, does a miracle in my life he always shows me so you know this is for anybody I hid up in that balcony for nine years I didn't involve myself with ministry because I was so burnt out and when I went into the men's choir and then I went into the evangelism and God has given me a, a, a whole new life through these things at this particular time I was in downtown Brooklyn on Fulton Street and God was going to show me the miracle he's done in my life because I didn't feel that rage and craziness over me no more so I was, I was giving out tracks in downtown street and uh, Fulton Street. So I went to take my jacket off and this, and, this, and this man taps me on the shoulder and he says, is that your jacket? There's this man running away with my jacket. So what do I do? I'm chasing him down the street with the tracks in my hand, you know? So I grab him by the back of his shoulder just like He goes, I'm sorry. I said, uh. So I turn around and I said, wait, what? what? I said, I don't, I don't feel that rage on me. I don't have to prove nothing no more. I said, no, no, no. I said, I don't want to hitch you. I just want my jacket back. You know, let me tell you, there's nothing good in me. It's it's just God's grace and His grace alone. Normally, if somebody would did that to me, I would have been enraged. How dare you attack me as a man? I wouldn't tolerate that. He, I was more shocked than he was. So I said, "No, just just give me my jacket back." So he gives me my jacket back, and I'm walking away, and I'm giving out the tracks, and, he, and I, I I just felt God's conviction, and I look at him, and I said, "Come over here for a second." I said, "Are you really need really need a jacket?" I was just shocked he didn't run away. I think he was more shocked he didn't run away. <laughs> And this lady is screaming, now you're going to get it. You know, I guess she was really hoping. She's screaming, now you're going to get it. I said, no, no. I I, I said, no, no, you're not going to get it. I said, here. I said, you "You really need it. So I, I took my jacket off. I handed him. I said, here's the track. I said, the Lord Jesus loves you. And he walked away, but I knew that God had did that for me. He was showing me what I didn't have to be that. I didn't have to be the man my father was anymore. But three weeks later, God would give me the ultimate lesson. And what a servant of God is. You ever see the black Israelites you know, all around? They, they got the staff of Moses in their hand down there. They're clacking it on the floor. <laughs> I'm walking back. I didn't have the evangelism t-shirt on. I didn't have the tracks in my hands. And this guy calls me over like this. So he's talking to me and he's talking to me. And he's giving out this spiel. I said, no, I have to, I, no I'm have I i listening and listening. I said, you know, I had enough of you. I'm saying, you know what? I said, you must be born again, the Bible says. And I said, Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. is the second person of the Trinity. I, I thought his head was going to pop off. He got so mad. He's screaming at me, and he's starting to make a scene, and, he, and he's getting louder and louder. But I didn't feel that rage anymore. I felt compassion for him. I, you know, I said, you know, Lord, this is it. If he hits me, I'm not, I'm not going to fight back anymore. I said, it, I'm not going to be the animal. I, was. I, I felt no fear, but I wasn't that enraged. There was a sister with me that was here from the evangelism ministry, Susan Corso. And believe me when I tell you this: if this was the old days and he would have been yelling at me with all the people standing around, you know what, I would have, this is the truth. I would have said, you know what? The Lord Jesus loves you, but I don't. You know, that's just just how I would have been in those days. But I knew that God had did a miracle. (laughs) God is faithful. I want to end my testimony by telling you this. I used to be a man that fought against flesh and blood. I trained in the martial arts for a lot of years. I was in natural. I never trained less than two hours a day. I even in some of the men in the men's choir There's one of the biggest Asian movie stars, biggest movie stars in the world named Jackie Chan. I have my arm around him. I've met him. But now, by God's grace, I fight against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in the heavens. This is the last thing I want to say to you tonight. My father, he was right about one thing. I will never be the man his father was. But I am the man that my Heavenly Father has made me to be. God bless you. Thank you.
1: Faith City Outreach can be heard daily, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. Arizona time and 7 p.m. Eastern time. Faith City Outreach thanks Global Women, Christian Chamber of Commerce, Embassy, and Four Winds Ministries for being supporters. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples, for great is his love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord.
0: You have been listening to Faith City Outreach with Marina Maria as she interviews Christian pastors and leaders to discuss scriptures and topics affecting the Christian community and to pray for the nations. If you need to contact Marina Maria, please email her at fcoprogram at gmail.com. That email again is fcoprogram at gmail.com. Until next time, Marina wants to remind you from Matthew six thirty three. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The music used in this broadcast is used courtesy of zapswat.com.